Good morning. Thanks for being here. Um, I was talking about this at pre-service prayer. So if you don't know, we meet here at 9 till sort of 9.45 and we intercede together for the service, for the community, for the world round about us. If you've not sampled it yet, please make it down sometime. We'd love to have you pray with us. It will grow you, it will stretch you, and it completely changes the work that we do here and what it looks like in the world. But um, that shameless little plug, but part of that, we, we had a, I was sharing with them this morning, I was at a conference at the weekend, you probably got my email about it called Prayer Connection. Just have to say, you really missed out. <laughs> It was, it was amazing. The content will be online. Um, and, and, you know, I, I spent lots of time over the weekend just going, man, I wish my whole church was here. This would be awesome. Um, worship was off the charts. There was this really fun morning yesterday. Um, they have, they used who I would say are probably the best worship band in all of Portland. And, uh, and, and they were just rocking it. Um, and it's like one family is at the center of it. Husband's on keys, their son is on bass, their, the wife sings, they're, they're just phenomenal. But there was this moment where the worship set was done, it had been really powerful. Uh, Johanna and the two backing vocalists get off the stage and it's just Steve on keys, their son on bass, and their drummer, and they're just playing and just kind of jamming. And the spirit went crazy. And people are crying and people are praying and people start singing and people are laughing and just like, and the guy who's running the conference gets up on the stage and he takes the mic and he's like, the, co- like the content needs to start now because people are watching online and he kept going. And then like someone would break out and something and then he'd be like, <laughs> and we're sitting in the front row giggling like little kids because I'm like, he has no idea what to do. You can't shut this down. The spirit is moving. It was really cool. Anyway, content was amazing. Michelle Jones was there. So of course it was amazing. Um, and then you can look up John Tyson has been in town this weekend. He's speaking at Bridgetown Church tonight. You can check that out online or you can go over there to watch him. But, but he's a guy from New York who leads a really powerful prayer ministry, very successful church. Um, and a really key voice in this time, uh, speaking into the culture that we're a part of. And, and I think the thing I want to say is, it's beautiful when men like that are called into town. And I got to spend time with him, Jack, Josh, others got to spend time with this guy. He is the real deal. Like a humble and powerful man of God. And so it's just a privilege to sit with him and learn from him uh, in this week. So I just... I'm, I'm kind of pumped, so I was just like, I got to say something to, to let you know if I, if I go off like a fire hydrant and I start throwing my notes to the side, you'll, you'll understand why. So, um, yeah, that, that conference is all about the relationship between prayer and mission. Um, and and the, there's a conference that happens in town called Mission Connection that's all about getting the gospel out to the ends of the earth. They launched Prayer Connection to help fuel the work of Mission Connection. So everything about that prayer conference is what we're about. It's that connection between the formation that we experience as we gather together in prayer and then the compelling out into the world. And again, that's why we're working through Acts and looking at this message sent. Who are we as the church? And do we really grasp the calling and the responsibility that we've been given as sent ones into the world? So we are in Acts chapter 16. I'm going to read it. Um, 
There's lots of nice place names in here. So we have, like, there's a map of Paul's journey sitting on your table um, so that you can see it as, as we go. We'll only get through part of it today. This journey is Acts 16, 17, and 18. So we're going to look at chapter 16. If you want to follow where he's traveling, you'll see them on there. And then we're going to look at four encounters, four God encounters that happen in Philippi um, that are part of this story. So let's begin Acts chapter 16. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where he met a disciple named Timothy who lived there, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted, him to, Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they, they, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to do so. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed, sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who'd gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of his shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. 
About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered you and Silas to be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. When they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. And then they left. Man, what a set of stories that is. So a couple of things that I want to address just before we jump into the proper content. There's two kind of strange occurrences that this chapter uh, begins with. And if you're, if you're tracking with Acts so far, you might have felt some dissonance at the beginning, but it's easy to kind of forget where we're at in the story. So the story begins right here with Paul making the decision to circumcise Timothy so that they can go on their mission. What just happened in Acts chapter 15? The church just met and had a council in Jerusalem because a bunch of people were telling the, 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 the Gentile believers that they needed to be circumcised. And the church has this big gathering to determine that you don't need to circumcise anyone to be saved. And now Paul is on this mission to deliver that news to the church he's round about. And he starts by taking Timothy and having him circumcised. You're like, Paul, what are you doing? I think the important thing that we need to remember in here is, is this is not a moment here where Paul is saying, in order to be saved, Timothy, we got to circumcise you. This is all about being fitted for the mission of God. The, the MO of Acts, the MO of the New Testament when it comes to sharing the gospel is first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. So every one of these stories begins with Paul and his entourage heading to the synagogue to declare the gospel with some often minimal fruit, and then when it's rejected, they head to the Gentiles and begin to share the gospel. So for Paul to be able to take Timothy with him into the synagogue to declare the gospel, Timothy needed to be circumcised. So this is not contradictory to the church council. This is him doing something that is missionally focused. Um, now, men in the room, <laughs> if God is asking you to do something missionally focused for the sake of the gospel, would you be excited about this one? Um, this is not an easy step for Timothy. 
right? This is a, a sacrifice and a painful one that Timothy is making for the sake of the gospel. And um, the other key part of this is, is the Jewish, the Judaizers were coming in and coercing the Gentiles to be circumcised for salvation. Paul is inviting Timothy to undergo this willingly in order to be missionally effective. So there are times where we'll have to do things that are costly and painful in order to engage uh, the mission of God. The second thing in the start of this story that I think is important just to address is it begins with this little story of this clear mission plan that they have to take the gospel to Asia. It makes sense in the eyes of the church. We're just going to follow the map and we're going to go up into Asia and share the gospel. And the scriptures say that God, the spirit of Christ opposed them doing what seemed logically sensible in sharing the gospel. So there are times when, when God is going to take the plans that we have and he's going to thwart them. And that might look like this. You do this whole 14-month interim process of discerning a vision for your church to move forward, and right as you're about to launch your strategic initiatives, COVID shuts down the world, and Alliance Bible Church doesn't get to do any of the things that were logically sensible in light of the mission that we've been on. Sometimes God will shut down our plans. So I've got it here to slide. Sometimes God frustrates our plans to lead us where we need to go. So they thought where they needed to go was into Asia by the logical route, but God had a different plan and different people that he wanted to reach. So as a church, you've been frustrated because you established a plan and didn't get to put it in place. Perhaps God frustrated the plan to take us where we need to go. And personally, there's people in this room who have a dream and a vision and a hope of what your life is going to look like. And right now, it's not going the way you planned. We just say COVID. We'll just say COVID. It's, it's ruining everyone's plans. Sometimes God is frustrating our plans to lead us where we need to go. And we need to remember that as we walk into this story. And one commentator says this, Jesus' witnesses too must patiently endure the frustration of their own plans in order to discover the opportunity that God holds open. This opportunity may not be next logical step by human calculation. And I'm like, that's just a good word. We could finish there, go home. Uh, we're done. Um, but all of that is setting up the, the rest of the story, these four encounters, divine encounters, that are significant in, in the gospel coming to a very varied group of people. So we're going to look at each of these four encounters. We're going to start with Lydia. Um, so in verse 14, says one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia. So they're in Philippi. Uh, the book of Philippians is written to this church. Um, she's a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God, but the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So I've, I've used the word a few times, inclusio. It's a literary device where you take two things and you put them at the start and the end to let us know that everything in between is kind of encapsulated in this moment. So this story starts in verse 14 with Lydia. And then at the end of the chapter, they're back in Lydia's house. So, so Luke's letting us know that all of the events we're about to look at, they all fit together. And there's a purpose that they go together. So Lydia is central. And this is framing the chapter. Um, Lydia is a wealthy businesswoman. So it's funny when we sit today, it's like, she's a, she does purple cloth. You're like, great. I prefer pink. Uh, 
But purple cloth is significant because purple cloth was the color for the wealthy and the royal. So she's dealing in fabric that she's selling to the rich and to royalty. So this is letting us know that she's a woman of wealth and a woman of means. She's a strong, successful businesswoman. And she is going to play a powerful part in the church. Um, and actually, we, f- we find out from this context, and then as he's writing later, that Lydia becomes the patron of the church in Philippi. So as soon as she comes to faith, uh, she responds to the message. She invites the people to her home. Her household is baptized. The mission has gone on. And then they come back to, the, to her home. And all of a sudden, they're in her home encouraging all the believers. It's possible that, that, that her home becomes the center base for the church in Philippi. So this is a very significant, wealthy businesswoman that has been rescued into the kingdom. So God, she's a God-fearer, so she's open to who the Lord is. She, usually the language of God-fearing means that she's embracing some of the ideals of Judaism without fully becoming a Jew. Um, so she understands God's plan. She's looking at God's plan. She's open to the gospel. She's a woman of means, but she's not understood the true gospel. So this is a moment of encounter as God sovereignly redirects Paul and Silas away from their plan to go into in order to reach a woman that's going to become the financial provision and patron of the church in Asia. I, I think it's really interesting too, like they're waylaid because they see a vision of a man in Macedonia and they start their mission and they reach out to a business woman. I'm like, God has a way in. If you're going, God's plan was the man of Macedonia. This is not who I'm supposed to be ministering to. She's a wealthy businesswoman. It's a Macedonian man. Like, I just appreciate Paul's openness everywhere he goes. It's like, I see the end goal, but every part of the journey is part of God's will for me to get there. So if he'd bypassed this, we'd lose a key woman in the ministry of the gospel. And I'm going to keep saying this every time I'm up here. Women are important in the ministry of God. Amen. Women's job is not to stay at home and watch the kids and be in the kitchen cooking the food for church. Women are important in the ministry of the gospel. Uh, here, it's not the wealthy businessman supporting the church. It's a wealthy businesswoman that's hosting the church in her house and making the mission of God possible. It's the wealthy businesswoman that's bringing her household to be saved and rescued. Um, and, and so women always, and Luke's gospel, play such a key role in the ministry of God. And this is going to be a church where we're going to honor the women and the gifts that God has brought into our midst. So that's number one. Number two divine encounter is the exact, well, almost the exact opposite. Um, This little slave girl. So all the way through the gospel, people are named randomly. There's lots of stories where you never know the name of the person. So here we've got this instance where all we're told is it's this slave girl. That's her name. Now just pause and do the contrast. Encounter number one, Lydia, who's named probably because the church knows who she is. She's probably influential enough that as people are reading Luke's gospel, they know who Lydia is. So you get this named business, successful, wealthy woman on the path toward knowledge of God, um, who, who Paul encounters and comes to save in faith. And then the next second, who's the next encounter? It's the slave girl who has nothing, who's earning money, but the money she earns goes into someone else's pocket and makes them wealthy. This is a girl who is double-possessed. Someone owns her. She's possessed by a human, 
Her life is in his hands. She's possessed by a spirit that's enabling her to tell the future. So this is a sad case. This poor girl um, trapped in two ways and in a culture that has no respect or honor for young women. The, the passage, as you're reading it in English, it says, you know, she had a spirit in her. There's the description of this in the Greek. There's a word and it only appears once in the whole Bible and it's in this passage. And it's the name of the spirit. And it's the name of a pagan spirit that really, we get the word python from this name. It's the Pythonian spirit. And, and if you're saying it like a Y in Greek is more like a U sound. So they'd call it Puthon or Puthia or the, the Puthian spirit. Um, but I just think it's interesting, God's creativity with words, that as you translate that into the English language, this little girl has the serpent spirit at work in her. This isn't just any spirit. This is full demonic impact in her life. And the story makes it seem, it doesn't, it doesn't tell you. It's not saying, let's look at the heart and the feelings and emotions of the slave girl. They're more focused on Paul and his ministry. But how do you think this girl feels to grow up in slavery, to grow up with some demonic presence manifesting in her body that she has no control over? To know that she's bringing in loads of money by the things coming out of her mouth, but none of it she gets to keep. Um, this part of the story actually breaks my heart because what does it say? They're going to the place of prayer. They're met by this female slave who has this spirit. And it says time and time again, she's coming up. And how does Paul heal her? He gets frustrated by this demon that's exposing them. This is a moment where I'm like, I mean, the word could be translated as burdened, it could be translated as broken, but most English translations are looking at this word and saying it's frustrated, it's angry, it's disturbed. And I'm like, Paul in this moment is not perfect. He's not looking at this slave girl and going, let's liberate this poor girl from her demonic oppression. Out of frustration, he turns to this girl and he's like, spirit be gone! And what's the result? The girl is set free and the whole city turns against him. What might have happened if he'd gone over to the girl and said, hey, let's set you free. Like, let, me, let me minister to you out of love. Let me talk to the people around you and see if we can share the gospel with them. I, I, I've thought about this a lot over the last week. Our zeal in the church to set people free often looks more like Paul with this slave girl than it looks like Paul with Lydia. We look at these people out there and go, oh, they're possessed, they're trapped, we don't like how they're living, we don't like how they look. Oh, I'm so frustrated, you need to clean up your life. Demons be gone! <laughs> Notice this story doesn't say she gave her life to Jesus and followed them. We don't know the result. Maybe she became part of the church, maybe she didn't. We have to check our posture in these moments. Um, do we want to be more like the encounter with Lydia, where we're lovingly leading people in conversation to Jesus? Or do we want to be uh, more like our interaction with the slave girl, where out of anger and frustration and being disturbed at the world, we just come hard at them and turn the world against us in the process? We've got to be really careful. Notice, though, he doesn't, he doesn't not deal with the spirit. He doesn't not deal with the demon and go, there's going to be consequences, so we're not going to do it. He addresses the issue. He sets her free. We're called to set people free, but let's check our hearts and the way that we're going about that and make sure we're doing it in the right way.
The other part in, in this encounter that we've got to remember is there's a relationship between the spiritual and the economic. And that is extra clear in the Western world where we're economically well off. Economically well-off people usually struggle to embrace the gospel because we don't have needs. The gospel takes root very powerfully in impoverished cultures where they understand the need that they have. But what was the impact here? The people are not angry that they freed the girl. They're angry that their loss of income. And I found myself thinking, what would truly happen if Christians really pursued Christ wholeheartedly? What would happen if in the city around about us we're setting people free? So recreational alcohol abusers are no longer buying alcohol. Recreational marijuana users are no longer smoking weed. People are being set free so they're no longer taking drugs. Uh, men and women are being set free of their lust so they're no longer engaging in prostitution or taking the services of human traffickers. Um, what if the, the industry out there of mass media that we look at and we go, I hate the content of this movie. Game of Thrones, it's horrible. It's like so sexual and it's violent, but I watch it every week, right? What if as Christians, what if the world was being transformed and we truly gave our life to Jesus and we stopped engaging in those things? There'd be an economic impact. The marijuana industry would not be very fond of the church. The alcohol industry would not be very fond of the church. The trafficking ring out there is not going to be very fond of the church, and they're going to do everything they can to stand against us. When people come to Jesus, it should affect the way we engage with finances. Gauges the way we view the income that we have. It changes the way we direct the funds that we have. And so the gospel should have an economic impact on the world around about us. And I think some of the things that we see go on where people out there target the church is because there is an economic impact. But I long for a day where the church in our area is living the gospel so wholeheartedly that there are agencies out there coming after the church because they're losing money, because people are being set free. Hopefully I'm not the only one, right? <laughs> I want to see it. I want to see it. I want to face that persecution because freedom is impacting the pockets of the wealthy. We'll see. <laughs> Let's just go on to the next one. <laughs> I get him a little, little moment. Both of those occurrences, just the side note, happened where? On the way to the place of prayer. Plug plug, right? There's a reason that prayer is central. Their ammo, get into town, find the praying people because that's where things are going to happen. We're going to keep being a praying church. So the, the third encounter we see is with this unnamed jailer. And I like to think of this, you've had the rich, wealthy businesswoman who's close to God. You've had this pagan, servant, double-possessed, demon-owned girl who's nowhere near Jesus that's rescued. And then you've got this unnamed jailer who at the point in the story that matters is suicidal out of fear and out of shame, another encounter that rescues from darkness and brings into the kingdom of the son that he loves. I, uh, I wonder, at this moment in the story, he's been told, right, you, you have these prisoners, guard them carefully. I found myself wondering if there's been some talk. There was this Jesus dude in a tomb whose body got stolen, 
There was this Peter dude that was in a prison and all of a sudden the doors were opened and he escaped and was in the middle of the time preaching the gospel. There have been guards killed because people have escaped that weren't supposed to. I wonder if those things, if that news has reached Philippi yet. I wonder if this jailer is going, when they're going, guard them carefully, they're like, these guys are doing miracles like the other guys. Something's gonna happen, so just make sure they don't get out. I wonder. And part of what makes me wonder that is this moment where, where there's an earthquake, cue the Peter story, um, and the doors are flung open, cue the Peter story, the, the chains fall off, cue the Peter story, and I wonder if in that moment he looked back at that story and was like, I'm going to die, I'm going to be killed because I've just allowed to happen what happened to Peter. I wonder how much he knows that story and how much it plays into this moment. I also wonder, with Paul at this moment as he walks into the jail, just a question, a theory, a possible scenario. There's nothing out there to say this is the case. But I have these moments where I'm like, I wonder if he walked into the jail and saw the jailer and recognized the Macedonian man from his dream. I wonder if Paul's ability to stand in jail and worship I wonder if his ability when the doors fly open to stay put is because he's just seen the face in front of him that he was dreaming about. Like, I just, I just wonder um, if this is the man that he was being sent to find. And what happens? There's this moment where, where the doors fly open. They're, they're in there, in prison, in chains, in the dark. Remember, it's pitch black, so he has to call for torches so they can actually see if they're in there. Middle of the night, in dark, just think about it, being imprisoned in a cold, musty cell at midnight in the middle of the dark, you're chained up, you're cold, you're freezing, you've just been stripped and beaten. Remember, they're stripping them because they want to know that they're Jews, because it's obvious. So they strip them, they throw them in there, they're exposing them, they're in there. What's your response? (laughs) We're going to sit here gladly embracing our chains. We're going to pray. We're going to worship. We're going to celebrate the God who's there. They're probably praying for liberation. God, come and rescue us. Get out of here. Save our lives. Spread the gospel. And then they're probably breaking into songs like, God, I feel so discouraged. This isn't the way it's going to go. So let's sing a song that you're the freer. You're the liberator. Let's sing one of the songs of Israel where you rescue people out of darkness. And then, God, you can do this. You say that this is the God you are. You told us that this is the mission you called us to. Okay, so let's sing a song again. And, and, and they sing the song from Colossians that you left heaven and you came down and you endured this stuff. But you were raised. You're powerful. Um, I wonder what that moment looked like, but they sat there, they worshiped, the doors are open, they stayed, and in the process, double saved this man's life. Maybe even triple saved his life. <laughs> if you can c- commit suicide and then be murdered for not doing your job, that would be t- um, But this man, in this moment of being willing to put up with the circumstance in front of them, I don't want to draw the inferences to the cultural situations we're in right now. But he endured the horrible situation in front of him in prayer and worship, and the people round about saw it and came to faith in Jesus. Notice he's not, it doesn't say he's sitting in jail and he's screaming against the system. He's not calling curses down upon the government. He's worshiping, and in response to their prayer and worship, 
an earthquake falls, which culturally was seen as the judgment of the gods. An earthquake comes, the doors fly open, and we have this beautiful encounter where this man is rescued from darkness. I don't know what was going on in his mind, but his first response, what must I do to be saved? And then all of a sudden, the jailer who's commanded to guard them carefully is the one bandaging their wounds. He's bringing them over to their house and feeding them food from the oppressive captor to the humble servant ministering to their needs. It's just such a beautiful picture. In this moment, he brings his household, his whole household is saved. This jailer, remember, this wasn't their plan. This wasn't where they were going. Three people thought we laid their plans. This moment with the jailer is, is reframed by Paul when he's writing to the church in Philippi, potentially from jail, um, from this jail, potentially from another one. Um, but he says in Philippians 1, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has actually, what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. It's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. His willingness to be in jail, to worship God's rescuing, the saving work that happens emboldens the church round about. We tend to just complain about it. Paul's like, look, if this is happening, God has a purpose. Let's open our eyes to see that purpose and step into it. It's an amazing moment. The fourth encounter that we have is in this story, and it's the climactic moment of Paul and Silas in jail. Suddenly, there's a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. This part of the story is the climax moment because it is demonstrating literally what's just happened spiritually in all the other encounters in the story. You see the words? Everyone's chains came loose. Everyone's chains came loose. Lydia's chains that kept her from being able to see God as he truly was came loose and her whole uh, economy was given to the work of the gospel. This poor little slave girl owned and possessed and probably trafficked is set free from the demonic spirit that's having a hold over her. And so now the attention is no longer on her. And I'm sure there was a lot of unwanted attention directed towards her. This jailer in a suicidal state, the one who puts the chains on people, is set free. His spiritual chains are loose as Paul's and Silas's spiritual chains are loosed. This whole chapter is, 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 is uh, centered and, 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 what's the word I want? Bookended with the Lydia story and it climaxes with this moment of chain breaking. And the, the thing that I want us to remember, we serve the chain breaker God. I, I think it's very easy to forget this truth because we see the chains. We see the chains that culture puts on us. We hear the chains of lies in our mind that bombard us. We see the sin habits that we wrestle with that we struggle to get free of. We see the people in the world round about us and the ways that they are chained. And we allow the enemy of our soul to blind our eyes to the reality that our God is the chain breaker. He's the one demonstrating that every chain will be loosed. That every person 
has the opportunity to be his instrument and taking the gospel to the nations. And often, the way that that's going to happen is not through the next logical step that we think we need to take, but by God, we're laying our plans to take us where we need to go. Um, we worship this chain-breaker God. So, so I want you to know, first of all, God wants to break the chains in your life. It may be an addiction that, that you're wrestling with. It may be a lie that has you trapped. It may be some sin issues that you just can't seem to break free of. It may be a life situation that you feel stuck in. God wants to break the chains. He's promised it's who he is and what he does. And you know, when I say those words, this is the beauty of the way our minds work and the way God works in our heart and our imagination. Even saying this, you're thinking about something specific. You're thinking about a specific issue in your life that needs broken. God wants to move in that area and break those chains. We're going to pray about that in a second. The other part, which is perhaps the most magical part of it all, is you, with all of your mess and brokenness, as a redeemed person that God is working in, he wants to anoint you to be someone that goes out into the world to loose chains. He wants to use you to break the chains that have the people around you bound. That starts with the people in your household that he wants to use you to set free. It's the people in our neighborhood that he wants to use you to set free. It's the people out there that you have no intention or idea or heart or vision to ever get to that he's going to redirect you and plop you next to them so that you can set them free. But it's going to require us having our faith elevated as he releases us. It's going to require us, like Paul, in the moment of our bondage, crying out in prayer and worship at midnight that God would move and watching him move. It's going to be about reframing the struggle and the persecution and the situations that we're in. And those things, as God's power moves on us and through us, are going to release the people around you from bondage. And so here's, here's what I want to do to close, is we can't talk about this and then not do something about it. So, so I'm going to pray for all of us first that God would be breaking the chains of the things that you have in mind. Um, and then I'm going to invite you, if you would like people to pray for you, I'm going to invite you to stand afterwards, and we'll just have some people come alongside and pray um, that God will set you free. So, so I'll pray first, and then if you want prayer, we'll invite you for prayer. So, so God, thank you for the truth of your scripture, that you are the chain-breaking God. Just as you loosed Paul's physical chains, just as you set Lydia free, just as you uh, set this poor slave girl free, just as you called the jailer from the brink of death to a future serving you, God, we want to see chains broken. I want this, and we want this to be a church where people walk in the doors to be liberated, not to have a yoke placed on them, not to have a burden stuck on them, not to have a whole list of requirements that they have to do to fit in. God, we want them to come in and be freed, freed from the lies, freed from the sin issues, freed from the difficult situations. So God, I pray for the people in the room. We, we know the issues that we deal with. God, we have in mind the things that have us bound. God, I pray a breaking of anxiety. I pray a breaking of sexual addiction. God, I pray a breaking uh, of the idolatry of pride and selfish ambition. 
God, I pray, I pray a breaking of broken marriage. I pray that you would break in and break the chains of dismantled families. God, you're the chain breaker. And so we invite you to be the Lord in this room and to break our chains. So if, if you're here and you're going, man, I would just love someone to pray for me right now. There's something very specific in my mind or in my heart. I'd love you just to stand up the, the disclaimer. You don't have to tell anyone what your issue is. But if you're here and you're like, man, I would love some prayer for freedom. Uh, I'd love you just to stand up and we'll have a few people gather around and pray. Thanks, Lippy. Jack. So, I mean, there's, there's a few people standing. If you're nearby, just turn around, put your hands toward them, and, and let's just take a moment to pray. Um, if you're not next to someone, here's what I would invite you to do. Pray. And you don't need to pray out loud so everyone can hear you, but just mutter prayer under your breath for the people in the room, and let's ask God to move. Um, you can keep praying for the people that are there. I just, if you're able, I invite those who are able to stand. Um, and, and if you can't stand, which I know, like just hands up or hands out. And I just want to, I just want to pray this blessing over us that we would be chain-breaking people. Um, so let's stand together. God, God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the clear calling of Scripture. We are sent ones into the world. And so we are standing here together to say, God, we want to be this kind of church. We want to be a place where people are set free. And God, I just ask, I think about an Acts. I just visualize tongues of fire landing on each head, that your spirit would fill us and you would send us to set people free. So that means in our houses, you would, you would empower 
empower us to be freedom bringers to the people that we live around. Uh, as we enter schools, that you would use us to bring liberation uh, to the people that are around us, the students, the teachers, the systems. Lord, as we're out in workplaces and hospitals, in communities, that you would open our eyes to see the person in front of us, that you would give us your heart for them, and then that you would use us to set them free. So God, as a body, uh, would you anoint us to be chain breakers with you in this world? Uh, and then, God, would you use that to expand your kingdom, that your name would be exalted, and your kingdom would come on earth as in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.